Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of February 10th, 2020. On the show today, Carousel of Progress needs a hand. Disney builds an army of swarming drones. What could possibly go wrong? And Jim walks us through the history of the Disney Institute. Let's get started by bringing in the man who points out that arms for your chairs are really chairs for your arms. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? We drive on a parkway and park in a driveway. <laughs> We're in that world, eh? Okay. It's true. It's true. Up is down. Left is right. Cats and dogs sleeping together. <laughs> Speaking of that, I saw Ghostbusters the other day on a flight uh, back back east, and mm-hmm. it's still as adorable as ever. The entire yeah. movie. The first one is is really perfection, and, yeah, but the second one, one yeah. it's one of those sequels that actually takes away from the original. Yeah. I, I only think of the first one. My favorite scene that I mm-hmm. forgot and then remembered was mm-hmm. the one where all of the Ghostbusters are in the mayor's office after mm-hmm. the lab got shut down. And Bill Murray is talking to the mayor and he says, just think, Billy, you could possibly save the lives of millions of registered voters. <laughs> It's got so many wonderful lines. Somewhere out there, there's the draft that Aykroyd wrote for when it was going to be him, John Belushi, yeah. and Eddie Murphy. That he'd written the film for those three. So, all right, I'm going to have to go look that up when we're uh, when we're done here. Okay. All right, Jim. Let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers Stephen S S, Matt W, and Sarah M in North Carolina. And longtime subscribers, Mike S., Carson Z., and Keith B. Jim, these folks handle all of the pyrotechnics and explosions at the Indiana Jones show at Hollywood Studios. And on weekends, Jim, they're an award-winning barbecue team. If you look close during the fight scene in Indiana Jones where fire engulfs the Nazi airplane, you'll see rotisserie chickens and Kansas City ribs strapped to the airplane wings just so they can practice. True story. Ooh. <laughs> I know. What? Lunch after the show. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right, folks, let's do the news. Jim, every show should begin with a round of self-congratulations. We said on Jan- our January 23rd show and in a bunch of follow-up emails that we got from listeners that Disney would probably announce fast passes for Mickey and Minnie's Runway Railway the first week of February. And it happened today. So good news for everyone who's headed to the studios after March 4th. For what it's worth, Jim. I expect there'll be some sort of soft open before March 4th. They're far enough ahead on the schedule that I'm thinking the odds are better than 50-50. Are you hearing anything? Yeah, and trust me, they need this one to open. On time and run. On time and bug-free. So yeah, Yeah. anticipate week to 10 days out. And mind you, it'll be the standard soft opening thing, that if you get lucky and you're walking by at the right moment, suddenly the wall of shrubbery will part. Like Moses in the Bible? There we go. It was, it was shrubbery, right? <laughs> shrubbery? Is it, maybe that was, it was the first draft. I think you're thinking of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but you yeah, know. I, I, I get the two confused a lot, but okay, fair enough. All right, Jim, uh, word got around on social media last night that in Carousel of Progress's 1920s scene, the right hand of John, the animatronic father, fell off in the middle of a performance. And because money is tight over at Disney, here are some mm-hmm. helpful suggestions my family has come up with. <laughs> to keep the show running in this situation. Laurel says they should replace it with a hook. <laughs> oh. My sister Christina says they should just balance it precariously so that it falls off at random because people will flock to the show to see it happen, thereby boosting the numbers for the show. My other sister, Linda, says that if it falls off during your show, you should get 
fast passes to any ride in the park. Wow. These are all wonderful suggestions, but they kind of overlook the fact that they haven't been doing the maintenance they should be doing on Carousel of Progress for quite some time now. You mentioned that. So we sent Christina over there today to see what's mm-hmm. going on. Yep. And she pointed out that the, uh, you know, the unnamed daughter in the 1920 mm-hmm. scene that's doing the laundry? Yep. She's also missing a hand. So <laughs> so clearly, Uncle Orville is hacking the family up for parts. Oh, oh, oh. Just, <laughs> wow. You know, if the, if somebody isn't developing the show for Disney Plus right now, they really should. That the animatronics are okay. Are, so here's you know, here's here's I'm, I'm I'm just spitballing here. Okay. Yeah. So imagine it's the sort of the net at the museum thing where the animatronics come to life mm-hmm. at uh, after the park closes, but now they have to solve a mystery of who's taking their parts. <laughs> I, I should I should I just start typing this up now as we're talking, Jim? <laughs> And somehow, great moments with Mr. Lincoln. He what he becomes like Ganesh. <laughs> All right, we can work. We can work on this after the show. <laughs> okay, though. Jim, one last thing for the news: Disney's filed some interesting patent applications in the past couple of days. The first one is titled "Haptic Floor System with Quake Plate Assemblies, Producing Large Vibration Effects." And the thing that I love about this is it comes with an image where Disney's showing how people standing on a floor would react in a simulated earthquake. And it looks like, Jim, the worst discotheque ever made. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not so much that the floor is shaking. It's the, I think the bell bottoms and groovy shirts they put on the people in the drawing. You know, there's some Disney intern who's like, oh, I'm drawing stuff for Disney. This is going to be fabulous. And they, mm-hmm. they did it. It is just the most beautiful picture ever made. It's fabulous. Okay. But but what's what's Disney doing here? A floor system that simulates an earthquake. At Disney, when it comes to theme park rides, it's always about cumulative behavior. It's for example, Rise of the Resistance. We have that moment now where after you've made your way through the queue and Ray explains mm-hmm. you're gonna be on the mission, the door opens and you're on the airfield. You right. hear the sound and you rush to your shuttle. And so remember, we've got the Quinjet adventure coming. That's phase two of the Avengers campus uh, that's being built for uh, Disney's California Adventure. And the art that they've used to sell this is you're traveling to Wakanda on a Quinjet and the door opens and there's this battle royale going on in front of you. It's like, all right, so how do you actually establish that what you're seeing on the screen is really happening? You have the part of the jet you're standing on quake with the impact of like the Hulk outside, you know, beating the hell out of these. Oh, got it. It's one of these things where your feet are telling you that's really happening in front of you because the vibration is coming up out of the ground. So that's Avengers stuff. So All right. So you think it'll be Disneyland primarily? Well, remember, the the Quinjet adventure is supposedly going to be cloned for Hong Kong uh, Disneyland as well as for uh, Walt Disney Studios in Paris. So so you mentioned mentioned the Hulk thing and I, I was flipping through the images for the for the patent. The other, the back images, because I, I got I got stuck on the discotheque thing, uh, and and lo and behold, Jim, one of the scenes show shows somebody with Hulk hands smashing <laughs> down on the floor. Wow, how about that? What an amazing coincidence! I'm, <laughs> I'm, okay, I'm, right. I'm shocked, shocked that there's gambling going inside of this establishment. <laughs> I, no, I just wanted to make sure that everybody knew you knew what you were talking about. Fair enough. Okay, All right. every so the, often. So, yeah, you know. 
The, uh, the second patent is titled Techniques for Immersive Virtual Reality Experiences. Now, to me, the image here looks like Epcot Experience. It's a uh, circular room with uh, a room with circular walls, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that goes up and a projection being shown on those walls. Do you think Disney's doing something beyond Epcot Experience with this? Like an actual attraction attraction? Well, oh, Okay, never mind. I know what it is because I'm now flipping through the rest of the images, uh, mm -hmm. and it shows characters in there too. So this is this might be something for the play pavilion. Also, there was an inter uh, interview with the Disneyland VP that the Orange County Register just did, mm -hmm. and uh, sort of pivoting back to the Avengers Campus, uh, Phase One of which will be opening this summer with the Spider-Man attraction. And what the VP there was talking about was. Well, you have to understand that what's about to happen is that right now we have all of our meet and greets with the Marvel characters are in the Hollywood backlot area. But of course, mm -hmm. those are all shifting over to the Avengers campus once phase one of that opens this summer. And that means, okay, so what are we going to do with Hollywood backlot once we right. pull the Avengers out? Because they've been sort of propping up that area. And you just drop Mickey's Magic into the old Muppets Theater. You've got Frozen, the musical. It isn't the draw. I mean, it's certainly not going to last as long as Aladdin did. Right. And so, you know, there's there's what's on the table after the full Avengers campus opens. And got to warn folks, that could be as late as 2024. Wow. They're hoping 2022, 2023, but just be aware that it could take longer than expected. So Hollywood Backlot is the next thing that's being considered. And one of the ideas that they'd really love to finally get going is there's this concept called the black box. This is something Bob Chapek has championed for years now. He's always been frustrated that, you know, like say when Onward is comes out on March 4th, wouldn't it be great if you could go to Disneyland, you know, or, or Disney's California Adventure and the weekend that Onward opened that there was an attraction there. Nice. So the notion is, well, what if you just put sort of a, an Omnimover ride system in a building that featured this Epcot Experience projection technology? And, you know, the very thing you talk about with a character, what if you put somebody in one of the outfits, walk around character outfits from Onward, but you, you projected scenes or scenery from the film in that space? And it, you could literally have this dynamic attraction that every six months changed out to be about whatever film or, for that matter, whatever show on Disney Plus Disney was pushing. So it's interesting that you mentioned that because one of the images in like the, the towards the very end of the patent application shows a guest in a cape mm -hmm. with the projection being Hulk, Thor, Captain America, and Hawkeye. There we go. Huh. And then there's, a, there's another image and it's mm -hmm. a uh, and so there's explosions going on all around the guest mm -hmm. uh, you know, as this happens. But there's another one with a child uh, mm -hmm. guest in what looks like Under the Sea from Little Mermaid. Or, or there's, so there's uh, Sebastian there. Mm -hmm. And there's also looks like Nemo. So it could be some sort of hybrid all the fish in the sea yeah, yeah. attraction. Oh, but that's interesting. All right. So that's what they're, that's what they're going for there. All right. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Okay. Jim, the uh, the third one, the last one that I want to go over here is possibly the one that's uh, that's the scariest. Mm -hmm. It's called secondary robot commands in robot swarms. So, 
setting aside the fact that Disney's creating a drone army here, right? And then and then they're trying to patent how they're actually going to control it. The, the patent is actually how to pretend one drone, quote, did something to another drone, like crashing into it without actually crashing into it. So the patent says that, imagine you're playing a game, two people are playing a game, and they're using drones or remote control vehicles. And you want to... You want to allow one player to crash into another player without physically crashing into them because that would damage the, the vehicle and you don't want that to happen, right? So how do you simulate it? And this is, this is that patent. But the way that it reads, you know, secondary robot commands and robot swarms, it sounds a lot like to me like we're building Skynet so that in the, in the, the event that we can't take over every, every corporation in the, in the world, we've got a backup plan, right? <laughs> Okay. Oh, we're getting back to that that hand falling off of the AA figure, aren't we? All right. <laughs> the hand becomes sentient. It wanders off. <laughs> the claw, the claw. So what, what, why is Disney interested in interactive games that involve remote control vehicles or drones? Do you remember the Disney Quest, the Treasure of the Aztec thing with the trucks that, yeah. you know, you, you literally controlled them in the floor? And, you know, could watch sort of the first-person camera position of your truck driving through the, the tiny little maze. Disney feels like this, you know, the, the, especially given what's going on in the gaming space. And, and let's be honest, the, the Disney company is also somewhat frustrated over its success in the gaming field. That it typically will go in big. They'll spend all of this money and then not get the huge success that they wanted. And shut everything down and start over again in three years. There you go. And <laughs> re re repeat every couple of cycles, yeah. Yeah, and especially that, again, Disney it does look over its shoulder at the folks who are down the road. And just over the past couple of weeks or so, we've had more and more art come out for Super Nintendo Land, uh, you know, the one that will be opening at Universal Studios Japan. And, mm -hmm. you know, they've confirmed that that's coming to Epic Universe, the, the, the fourth park, and... They haven't admitted as such, but there is the the Mario uh, experience that's being built for Universal Studios Hollywood. So it's like, look, we need to be in the space because you know, uh, you know, again, just like butter beer and blue milk. Suddenly, you know, in the not too distant future, people are going to be talking about oh, that amazing immersive gaming, you know, being inside the game experience that Universal is doing, and what are we doing? And right. so. This is one of those tools in that box. It's like if we could create this moment where people are supposedly controlling a drone and move into attack another drone and the other one could dodge out of the way, that helps make this moment in a proposed gaming you know, based attraction or ride that much more possible. It would def definitely make it more uh, more interactive. All right, Jim, so you've got the, uh, the hopeful vision of the future here where Disney's trying to build the next generation of interactive Theme park experiences, I'm still holding out for robot apocalypse. Remember when you had that patent for the lightsaber coming through the door? Yeah. You had that like two or three years out from when Rise of the Resistance. 2017, yeah. 20, 2016 or 2017, yeah. Yeah, and, and it was the whole notion of it's like, well, what are they going to use this for? And yeah. it, if you think about it, they only use it for that one story beat, but it is such an impressive story beat. Yeah, it's it's like five seconds in one ride. They did an entire patent on it, but still, it's a it's a great effect. 
And and that's the thing here. Just just be ready for the fact that in, in the case whether it's this large vibrating floor plate or the secondary robot commands thing, it's just if it's only for you know that one beat of attraction, but it it sort of blows your mind. That's worth grabbing a patent for. It's true. It's uh it's good practice for uh, for mm-hmm. Disney. Yep. All right, folks. If we need to rebuild society after the coming drone apocalypse, Jim is going to tell us how the Disney Institute will help with that. We'll be right back. When we talked about this topic a couple weeks ago, I thought that the Disney Institute no longer existed. But you pointed out that not only does it exist, it's kind of thriving, right? If we're strictly talking a corporate entity as in it caters to large corporations who are looking for an excuse to come down to Walt Disney World. So they, they'll do some training there on site. Mm-hmm. Kind of the one-two punch of you bring employees down who in turn can bring their families and the families can be enjoying the theme parks while your staff is getting training. In fact, a lot of this this training is actually done over at Celebration, which if Michael Eisner had had his way back in the day, this is in fact where – the Disney Institute would have been built rather than piggybacked on the the old uh, Disney Village Resort. This really is, you know, a very Michael Eisner-centric story. Uh, it actually uh, starts summer of 85. It's about eight months after Michael Eisner becomes the, the, the new head of the Walt Disney Company. And at that point, the Walt Disney Company, out of the eight studios in Hollywood, it's, it's eighth. It's, it's dead last. They have to basically, from a cold start turned, you know, Disney into the entertainment superpower we know today. So that first year or so was particularly a crazy period. And and people were putting insane hours. I mean, showing up at like five in the morning so they could be the first on the phone with the East Coast. And they were often, you know, staying at the studio as late as midnight. And this was a a seven-day-a-week cycle during that time. And Supposedly, Jeffrey Katzenberg said this in sort of in jest, but you know when his lieutenants were griping about they they, they had to come in and work on the weekends. It's like, look, pal, if you, if you're not coming in on Saturday, don't bother coming in on Sunday. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so here's Jane Eisner watching her husband doing all this, and it's like putting in all these hours, and it's like, Michael, you're going to make yourself sick. And she's not wrong, because remember, right. July of 1994, Michael actually has to have emergency quintuple bypass surgery. And, and a lot of it, according to his doctor, was brought on by the stress of the job. So Jane turns to Michael and says, you're taking a couple of weeks off this summer, and we're, we're getting away from L.A. And they, they get as far away, really, as they can from Hollywood. They, they go to the Chautauqua Institute in upstate New York. And for those of you who aren't familiar with this outfit, started in 1874. Wow. Okay. It runs for nine weeks every summer. It, it's summer camp for executives, Jim? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> kind of summer camp for adults. I mean, it, oh, it's right. it's built right up against this, this wonderful picturesque lake in uh, upstate New York. And for nine weeks, over 100,000 people come to take classes, to attend lectures, to see performances. It's Woodstock. Uh, but but a, a very stately Woodstock, a very, <laughs> okay, very right. Woodstock for intellectuals. And Michael loves this. Michael spends three weeks learning new things and getting the chance to relax. But again, he can't turn off his Disney brain. And he comes back 
And it's like, this was amazing. And I really think this is something we should do. I saw all these people who bought packages to attend classes. And Michael wasn't wrong. Disney had research in hand during the same Mm -hmm. period talking about how the baby boomers were aging, their children had left the home. And so they're not necessarily automatically heading to Disney World anymore. They're looking for more hands-on experiences. They're looking to learn and grow. And so it's like, what if, say, at Disney World, we set up a Chautauqua incident only, for example, you could be taught a class by, for example, the chef at Victoria and Albert's, or say maybe one or two of the artists who were at that time working at the Walt Disney Animation Studios at MGM Studios. What if if they came over and taught you how to draw or paint or and so Iser got really jazzed about this, and, and especially since he was also talking at this point, of course, of, you know, they're finally going to fulfill Walt's dream. They're going to build a city at Walt Disney World, and this, of course, is celebration. Mm-hmm. They're already planning the downtown celebration that we know net today, that, that retail sort of Main Street area that faces onto the lake. You say retail area, Jim. It's a city block. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's half a city block, actually. But yeah, all right. All right. So, so, it's a lovely half a city block, I might add. It Every, is. It, it's picturesque, but tiny. Uh, But what Michael was proposing was like, what if on the other side of the the lake, we built Disney's Chautauqua? And the great part of it is when we're teaching cinema classes during the day when the cinema really isn't used, you know, people could go over to the two screen cinema that's right there in downtown. Or after people have finished taking classes for the day, they can head over and and dine in the restaurants or shop in the shops. And it's like, you know, it's a win-win. Oh, that's a fantastic idea. Yeah. But you got to remember, during the same period, Disney had set up uh, its strategic planning office. If you talk with a lot of people in other parts of the company, they referred to that as the business prevention department. <laughs> all, come up with all the reasons why it won't work. Yeah, and, and that was the thing. It was like, first of all, they were really hesitant about the whole celebration I did. We make movies. We run theme parks. We know nothing about running small towns. <laughs> Despite the fact that we, we actually run a fairly large town in the middle of Florida. But okay, fair enough. Yeah, but I swear, Jim, half the time, not half the time, but the, a considerable amount of time, mm-hmm. people in the Disney Corporation don't understand what the Disney Corporation does. I You're not wrong. You know, okay. All right. Okay. Here we go. So here's Eisner going. You know, we're going to build this town that's sort of a faux, a faux small town, America town, and then directly across the lake from that, we're going to build the Disney Institute. You know, our own version of Chautauqua. And you know, as far as they're concerned, it's like this is the equivalent of buying a ticket on the Titanic because you need to be to make it to New York in time. Because you already have tickets on the Hindenburg for the trip to, <laughs> to Lakehurst, New Jersey. You know, it's just sort of like disaster on disaster. What could go wrong here? Yeah, the, a lot of things. A lot of things have to go right, right? Yeah, and so uh, Eisner is insistent that he wants this to happen, and he, t- in fact, he he sets up a group of Imagineers to the effect of well, what sort of classes could we teach? And he comes back to the presentation and it's like, well, Mister Eisner, here are our five hundred ideas. And really, like, five hundred. 500. Holy cow. They eventually winnowed that down lend to 80. Still a lot. Yeah. And at the same time, they're pitching to Michael their ideas for the Institute. And, well, we think the campus will cost $100 billion to build. And the business development people are just like, they're losing their minds. Like, no, no, no. it's it's, It's a bad idea. But it's like, no, wait a minute. What if we took the Institute and didn't build it? Brand new. What if, what if we took a pre-existing resort, 
and say converted it into the Disney Institute. That would at least mitigate the costs. Okay, so it's no longer a celebration and it's no longer a standalone yep. thing. It's let's take an existing hotel and turn it or a resort and turn it into this. Yeah, but now the All question right. is which hotel? About the same time, they're taking a cold hard look at the Disney Village Marketplace, you know, and and the fact that they opened Pleasure Island in 89, uh, it's it's not done what that they had hoped it would do. And so, you know, they're giving some very serious thought to a complete rebranding, retheming, which which eventually became the Downtown Disney. But right next to it is also Disney's first attempt at sort of a residential community. I mean, the, the Disney Village Resort, if you, you took a look at it, mm-hmm. it was this weird hodgepodge of there were the treehouse villas, there were the townhouses, there were the bungalows, you know, a, a lot of them built in the 70s and woefully out of date. And it was, it was just the whole notion. Now, wait a minute, if we do this right, if we build, because again, remember, Michael was all so enthusiastic about the idea of building the Disney Institute across from Celebration because people would sure. go back and forth. And so like, wait a minute, if we built the Disney Institute, if we build it on top of the village and we update downtown Disney Village Marketplace and Pleasure Island and rebrand them as downtown Disney. It's almost the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, I can get behind this. And if you look at the calendar, they this was the idea. In fact, the Disney Institute gets announced March 15th, 1995. Disney then announces that the Downtown Disney Project in on June 20th of that same year. So it, it's literally, this was the idea going forward. We're going to revitalize both of these, and then they're both going to prop each other up. We're going to be able to capitalize on the energy and the excitement, and both are going to benefit from this. So. Eisner loves this idea, but again, he's still insistent on the small town America thing. So he mm-hmm. turns to Chicago architect Thomas Beebe, and he walks the campus of the Disney Village, and uh, and it's like, okay, yeah, I can do this, and you know, we, we can put, you know, we can create like a village green there, and we can make buildings that look like barns and town halls and grist mills and <laughs> grist mills. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Remember how you know Saratoga Springs, that's famous raceway that's in upstate New York, and right. when they were trying to save what they'd built, it's like we need something that's set kind of in New England with barns and barns, horses, racetracks. That's it. Okay, here now we got it. But Thomas was able, you know, came back to this and said, I think I can do this. I can get you your campus with your, your teaching areas and all that for only $35 million. That's what Disney spent to make Dick Tracy. So yeah, it's so. like, okay, sure. Let's go ahead with this. So Eisner announces, as I said, March 15, 1995. But Len, he does it from the stage of Carnegie Hall in New York. Really? This is a big deal. This is the next phase of what Disney's going to do, these, these educationally-based vacation experiences. From the business development point of view, it seemed like a relatively safe roll of the dice. I mean, after all, the Disney Institute was one of the smaller resorts on property. It only had, between the townhouses and the bungalows and the treehouses, 457 rooms. Oh, okay. The Four Seasons only has 433 rooms. But the classrooms, oh, by the way, not not classrooms, workshops, because, again, class denoted you're going to have homework or that sort of thing. Yeah. All designed, to, you know, they designed 28 of them. Uh, all were designed to hold 15 students or less. And initially what they were planning on doing is they figured if they, they did it right, 
going to end you running two sets of classes, morning and afternoon classes, because again, you know, people didn't want to necessarily be locked in for the full day and they could go off to shop at, at the Disney Marketplace or go to one of the theme parks. For the first year or two, there'd be 900 students on the campus at any one time. And, okay. and the plan was to, to further build out. And by five years in, they'd be at uh, you know, 1,200 students a day. And so they, they envisioned opening at three quarters capacity. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's ambitious. Okay. All right. This is also during a period where each day, on an average day, the Magic Kingdom had 30,000 people in it. So to, to shoot for your goal for the Institute to have just 900 people a day seemed modest, reasonable. Disney is plowing money into the Institute. Like, for example, for the cooking classes, the idea was that they had a closed-circuit television system in, in the class. So as you know, you're sitting at your table following along with the, your, your person who's, who's teaching the class, but you also have a television monitor on your desk that's showing you in exquisite detail what exactly they're doing with their knife to prep the chicken or cut the vegetables and that sort of thing. So nice. a lot of technology poured into this thing. But at the same time, there's this kind of huge disconnect that's going on at Disney that Communicur got changed to interventions because – one of the notes that Disney kept getting was that people don't go on vacation to Disney World to be educated. They come to be entertained. And so here's Barry Braverman trying to take what Epcot does and make it that much more entertaining. So you literally have the company going off in different directions. Epcot is trying to step away from being more educational. And here's Disney trying to get this education-based vacation experience up out of the ground going. Yeah, I see the disconnect there. Yeah. But but at least for this one, mm -hmm. if you're going to the Disney Institute, you're sort of self-selecting into it. You are. Right? You know you what you're are, getting. But people weren't selecting, Len. Oh, okay, okay. December of 1995. You know, I mean, there's this huge publicity push going on. In fact, you, if you have any old copies of the Disney News from summer, fall, uh, winter of 1995, there were full-page ads. There were huge articles supporting the launch. But nobody's buying. And so really? when the Institute finally opens in February of 1996, they announce for the first 100 days, anybody can come and stay at the Disney Institute and take three full days of classes for just $349 per person double occupancy. Does that include theme park tickets? We're not there yet, but we will be soon. The original packages, if you look at the early press for this, and remember, Eisner announced it March of, of 1995. We opened February of 1996. The original price points, as they discussed, they started, the three-day package was $582. So it's been discounted 40% just before it opens. Yeah. Then there are seven-day-long educational-based vacation experiences that run as high as $1,900.86 per person. Wow. Nancy and I actually went down and attended a, a couple events at Disney Institute. I remember particularly with much fondness the animation celebration that they did for Mulan where they brought in, for example, June Foray, the, the woman who voiced Grandmother Fa. They brought in the directors. I mean, it was this amazing three-day-long event where top to bottom, amazing stories about the film. But even that, you know, I remember being in, in the town hall theater set up for this beautiful uh, handcrafted theater uh, that was one-third full. Even with you know, the studio getting behind this event and pushing that it was about Milan, people didn't turn out. And at this point, they're not a, a month or two into this place being open where they start a promotional push to 
not only guests on property, but Florida residents said, hey, do you want to go over to the Disney Institute? You know, because you for $49, we'll get you into a class. And this is 1996, where a one-day, one-park ticket costs $38.50. Yeah, so people are like, why would I do that when I can go to an entire theme park for 20% less money? I've spoken with a couple of veterans who, who you know, who worked at Disney Institute, and they, they talk about how they had kind of a town hall just before it opened and how Michael Eisner stood on stage and explained to them, said, look, I know this is kind of a risky proposition for Disney, but I want to let you know I'm willing to let this place operate at a loss for three years while we sort it out, while we figure out what people really want to do. And that really wasn't the case, Len. Within three months, May of 1996, the 80-class roster was cut to 60 classes. And within a, a year's time of that, they'd be cut back to just 24 classes. Wow. So with uh, less than a third of what they'd originally started with. For those of you who went to Walt Disney World in, in 1996, 1997, you, you re may remember coming back to your hotel at night and there was an eager, bordering on frantic cast member holding brochures for the Disney Institute. Like, do you want to go over tomorrow and take a class? Please. Yeah. So Disney is surveying left and right, trying to figure out, well, what do we do wrong? Why isn't this working? And one of the things that came up consistently, part of the survey is about people not enjoying their time at the Disney Institute, was the hotel rooms here are so terrible. Really? It was the hotel? It was the thing that they didn't... Well, that's exactly of, uh, all of the room and the fixtures are from the 1970s. And so December of, of 96, they, Disney announces that they're going to redo 316 rooms at the resort to, to bring them up to date, to bring them up to the level of the rest of the resort. But by then, Len, really, the ship has sailed. This is not a success. But of, at the same time, it's Michael Eisner's passion project. And nobody wants mm -hmm. to go to the boss and say, hey, your thing isn't working. So. Right. They start doing these kind of sleight of hands thing, you know, the effect of these classes are, aren't successful, but we do have these offerings that we already do at the resource, like the Hidden Treasures of the World Showcase or the Backstage Magic Tour or, or the Innovations in Action thing that would take you behind the scenes and show off like the computer room at, at Epcot or, or that sort of thing. And so very quietly, they take those tours and assign them to Disney Institute. Oh, really? So now they're, now they're a Disney Institute offering. There you go. And you know, there's also, for example, the Youth Education Series. Uh, those are the... Yeah, the so, Yes stuff, yeah. Yeah, the stuff that's offered to kids 10 to 16 who were there at Disney World, you know, if they were on a, a band trip or that sort of thing. Those get shifted over to the Disney Institute. So they can at least artificially boost the Institute's number and say that it's a success. I mean, look how many people are taking classes. The fact that people were already taking those classes, those experiences, before there was a Disney Institute, doesn't matter. They're just doing what they can to prop up the Disney Institute. But, of course, Len, all of this changes on September 11, 2001. The planes go to crash into the tower and the Pentagon. Uh, there's that horrible three- or four-month-long period where people are afraid to get on planes and attendance levels at the parks plummet. There's no way to artificially boost the numbers to Disney Institute because there were no people on property. So it's about this time, uh, January 25th, 2002, that uh, Disney announces that on February 8th, the Disney Institute closes for good. It then pivots to the, it becomes the next thing that Disney is most excited about, you know, when it comes to changing vacation concepts. And of course, that's the Disney Vacation Club. But they wind up tearing down 
more than half of the pre-existing uh, Disney Institute. And now, when the um, Saratoga Springs opens in May of, of 2004, mm-hmm. it becomes the largest DVC ever. It's 1,260 studios, one, two, and three bedroom units. And I want to say the the one that comes closest to it after that with 761 rooms is the original Old Key West. That sounds roughly right, yeah. Yeah. Supposedly one of the key elements of this story was that how downtown Disney was going to be rebranded and, you know, there was going to be, the Disney Institute was going to open at the same time and they were going to prop each other up and the downtown Disney rebranding didn't work the way Disney hoped. And so... No, they, they launched into a uh, into a decline of, of downtown Disney, right? Of the, the end of Pleasure Island and the... Uh, yeah, well, well, Pleasure Island yeah. opens, uh, you know, they finally admit that this isn't working. So that shuts down September of uh, 2008. And then November 2010, we get the... Uh, they announced the Hyperion Warp Project. <laughs> Whatever happened to that? <laughs> no, we, we've done a show on it. We know what happened to it. Well, again, it was just the whole notion of that's kind of a bandage on a heart problem. And uh, all right, let's yeah. really address the heart problem. So March of 2013, we Hyperion Warp gets abandoned. And that's when we get Disney Springs. One of the very first pieces of Disney Springs that gets completed is the bridge from the, the marketplace section over to, uh, again, the old Walt Disney uh, Village, you know, now the Saratoga Springs. Is, yeah, yeah. It's a great it's a great walking path, too. It's really nice at night when the weather's not too warm. Uh, but Len, here's the thing. Okay, remember. <laughs> I know. Should have done, done this 15 years earlier, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, <laughs> there was I, this bridge I, in 1995. I, I don't, <laughs> I, I just don't understand this. Because remember, the only way, the only way you could get over to the Disney Village is you had to walk to the front of the Institute or the, the, the mm-hmm. village, grab a bus, and then the bus would take you over. The bus was an option. Did you ever try walking it along the road, though? I didn't know. Because you had, you had to walk over the bridge and there was no dedicated pedestrian lane. You were you were basically walking on the shoulder of the road, yeah. which is taking your life into your I did it once, and mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, never again. That's, I guess, the part of this I don't understand. If this is early in the, the, the mid-'90s, you know, when they're talking about this, why was there no bridge? Why did it take to 2014? It, the fact that it was the one of the very first things completed for Disney Springs. Clearly, somebody at Disney remembered. And it's like, hey, you know, we're going to finally build that bridge. You know, just because. <laughs> but anyway, that is in, in sort of collapsed card table form. The story of the Disney Institute, but which again still does exist. I guess sort of will make Michael as happy. It did eventually end up over at Celebration, but not necessarily in the way he did imagined and and now it's a, it's more corporate stuff right corporate oh, leadership yeah. corporate absolutely and chautauqua is still going strong that's that's fantastic yeah good i'm glad to see it uh, still exists have you uh is it possible for individual people to take classes do you think i know if you reach out i mean mind you it's pricey len is it if you look at the price for the classes today when you're, you're bringing your corporation your workers down for a block of classes, you know, it's hard not to look at the prices that Disney's charging. And it's like, you're still trying to get that $35 million back, aren't you? <laughs> With interest. What, what is the, uh, what is the cost? Do you know? If you're doing a three and four hour thing, it's $500 per employee and then materials for the class. And if you're doing multi-day after that, it just, it just climbs from there. Oh, so I'm, so I'm looking on, on site. So it's, 
uh, $1,750. I'm guessing that's per person. Yeah. Wow. And then the multi-day courses are $5,600. Mm-hmm. So when you, you factor in the fees, you factor in you know, the, the material. I mean, it, it gets crazy, crazy pricey. That might be, I don't think that's per person. I think that might be for the class. That's so we should, uh, all right. Oh, I'm going to follow up. So real quick before we, uh, before we conclude, Jim, uh, if any of our listeners have actually taken a class at the Disney Institute recently, I would love to hear Oh yeah, about the, uh, about, about the, how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, I want to say from Nancy and my own experience at the Institute, it, it was lovely. They, they were, you know, wonderful, dedicated, passionate staff. And it really did kind of break my heart when it, when it shut down. You know, I'm sure some of those people survived in the somewhat mutated form of this. Sure. But it, if you you talk with folks at the Institute today, you know, was asking about the price of the classes. And it's like, well, you have to understand that these are corporations that are paying this. And, you know, they'll typically be able to take educational employees off their taxes. So it's like, right. you know, it, it's, a, it's, it's kind a of a win-win. You know, we make money and they get, get an excuse for their employees to come to Disney World with their families and uh, and they get a tax write-off. So everybody's happy except Michael Eisner. So. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure Michael Eisner is doing just fine. Well, they just ended BoJack Horseman. How happy can he be? <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. We will find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. You can also find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me at touringplans.com. On next week's show, the history and future of Epcot's American Adventure Pavilion. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's showing off the kitchen of your dreams with Calicata marble flat panel millwork and big, bold backsplashes at this weekend's York Home and Garden Show in beautiful downtown York, Nebraska. While Aaron's doing that, please go on to iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.